This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now, today we have a very, very exciting episode. We are joined by Mary Manning, a Portfolio Manager at Alfinity Investment Management. Mary is an absolute unicorn in the funds management space. She's had over 25 years experience in capital markets and her focus is actually on the consumer and internet sectors, as well as running the Alfinity Global Sustainable Fund. And she has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the ESG and sustainable investing space. So we are super stoked to bring you this chat today. Now, our guest today was previously the portfolio manager for the Asian Strategies Fund at Elston Capital, based here in Sydney, where she was there for 10 years. And prior to that, she was an analyst at Oak Tree Capital and Soros Fund Management. Mary really does know her stuff. She, in fact, got her PhD in economics from the University of Sydney and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Wow, wow, wow. I just want to be you, Mary. (laughs) So why we wanted you to come onto the show, Mary, is because you really, truly know the global perspective when it comes to investing. You've lived and worked overseas in Canada, New York, Moscow, London, Singapore, and now in Australia for the last decade or so. So we're super excited to chat with you about the global markets and investment opportunities you are seeing currently. That's it. And you need to listen to the entire episode because she gives away some absolute fantastic ideas. So this is a full 50 minutes, guys. Now, remember, our chat today is not considered personal advice. Even though we're registered advisors at Shore and Partners, please note that the podcast discussed and the content does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. It's also based on facts known at the time, which is the 29th of November, 2022. Welcome, Mary, to Talk Money to me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited that we've got you on the podcast. So let's kick it off with our first question. So how are you feeling about this market? I mean, it's been a crazy three years for us. Um, Are you worried heading into 2023? And I guess what's your take on what's going on right now? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the on the podcast. I'm a big fan, so I'm I'm happy to be on. Uh, you're right; it has been a very volatile few years. You had COVID, and then you had the COVID recovery, and you've had lots of different sectors performing and outperforming. Then you had the situation in Europe with Russia and Ukraine, and now you have you know a lot going on in in China. So there's certainly a lot to uh, keep us busy at work and, and awake at night. I'd say the one thing that, that I focus on and certainly which is the focus of, of Alfinity Investment Management is looking at the earnings cycle. So, you know, share prices do follow earnings. And if you look at what happened over those three years and sort of get rid of all the noise, um, one thing that you will notice is that it's it actually happened during all the noise also is that share price followed where earnings were going. And so when we look forward into the fourth quarter of 2022 and certainly into 2023, 
there is a case to be made that earnings still need to go down further from here. So a lot of companies across sectors uh, don't have a lot of visibility for the fourth quarter. This is particularly true for retailers or any company that has to do with the consumer. They're unclear about how you know Black Friday sales are going to go, how Christmas sales are going to go, what the employment outlook is going to look like and inflation for 2023. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, you know, my thinking is that when fourth quarter results come out, they're not going to be great for a lot of um, you know pockets of of global equities. And so you'll get another few downgrades and you may get some downgrades to earnings as companies come out and give their 2023 guidance. And that's when you want to be looking at the market and seeing what stock look interesting. I think it's a little bit early now when there's a lot of uncertainty going into fourth quarter and 2023 guidance. Yeah, 100%. I mean, do you think this is kind of a bit of a bear market rally then? Potentially, yeah. So, um, you know, obviously, markets did sell off quite significantly during 2022, and then when you saw, um, you know, the bounce off the bottom, there were a couple things there. One is technicals, and we don't really look at technicals at Alfinity, but certainly a lot of funds do, and a lot of funds flow around the world does look at those technicals. And there's also a lot of cash sitting on the the sidelines. So we're, you know, a couple months, if, if you know, almost a year into a bear market, so funds have raised a lot of cash. And that means that there's a lot of firepower there for when you might get get a sort of bear market rally. The second thing that happens, if, if you remember a few weeks ago, there was uh, that inflation print that came across as, as um, you know, more benign than people were expecting. And that made people quite excited that maybe we're at the, the end or, you know, near the end of the inflation cycle and the interest rate rising cycle. And there'd be some sort of pivot by the Fed. So, you know, there, there were some very big market movements that happened on, on one number <laughs> coming across the yeah. tape. And certainly the affinity way is not to, um, you know, bet the farm on one macro outcome and certainly not on one macro data point. But I think that was a big driver of what's what's happened in, in the, the bear market rally in the last few weeks. So inflation is something that we're obviously watching very closely going into 2023. But you're going to need to see a pattern of, of sort of inflation plateauing and then um, some possibility of, of a reaction to that by the Fed rather than just, you know, buying one data point. Yeah. So I guess as a global portfolio manager, you're really going to be looking at what the Fed's going to do potentially this December, right? If they do pivot from the 75 basis points or if it is only 50 basis points, that's going to be, I think, very interesting. Yeah, it's important to, it's certainly important to watch because if you look at what's happened within subsectors over the last year, you've had very expensive stocks or certainly that unprofitable tech sector companies that is very difficult to, to value. Um, you know, if you're, if you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis or something. And as those rates go up, then obviously you've seen massive, uh, multiple contraction on those stocks. So if the Fed starts to pivot and is on pause, you would likely see a big rotation to some of those growthier names or some of those higher PE names. So I think that's what people are, are getting are anticipating for next year. But, you know, it's quite risky. You know, there's a saying in the market, catching a falling knife for a reason. <laughs> it's very, it's very risky to try to catch a falling knife. And so our view at Alfinity is to, to follow that earnings leadership and to wait until you see those earnings turn around rather than try to catch the falling knife because, um, you know, it's, it's hard to get that right. And sometimes you may think it's the bottom, but you're actually, you know, months or even, you know, a year away from what that bottom is. And you can really do a lot of damage to your portfolio and a lot of damage to your ability to generate alpha if you're trying to, you know, bottom ticket rather than, than to wait till you have confirmation that earnings have turned around. Yeah, I love that saying. Like, it's probably one of my favorites, Mary. I always say to clients, it's so hard to 
catch a falling knife. That's a really good point that you've brought up because that's the same kind of feelings that we're getting in the market is that we haven't yet fully quote unquote bottomed and I'm doing my little speech marks here. So good segue into what I want to ask you. You know, we don't have a crystal ball, neither do you, but we really love chatting to you because you do, you know, you're at the forefront of the global markets. Um, so we're, we're days away from the Fed chatting to us about inflation and interest rates. It's really important in the communication of what they communicate. So what are you kind of expecting here? You know, what do you think the market's priced in and can you give us any insights from your perspective as we're days away? Yeah, I'd say the first insight that I would say is that in this sort of environment, um, it's very important to have a diversified portfolio because, um, you know, I have a PhD in economics. I work for George Soros. I, I've done a lot of macro analysis in, in my life. And my takeaway from that is that getting macro calls 100% right, both the call, the timing and the market reaction is very, very, very difficult. So, um, you know, we don't have the portfolio oriented to one sort of Fed outcome or one sort of Fed language. We are running a very, very diversified portfolio. So this is a portfolio of stocks that can can, can perform in many different market environments. And certainly the, there are, you know, um, ways that the portfolio can change over time. Um, but I think running a diversified portfolio in this kind of environment is absolutely critical because, um, you know, you, you need to be able to have a portfolio that can perform in, in different kinds of environments. And I think the second thing um, that I would say is to have conviction in the stocks that you do own. So, um, you know, rather than just owning, say, I'm going to own a major U.S. bank because it's uh, exposed to interest rates, it's exposed to inflation, keep going up, and, and I've made a call on this the interest rate cycle, and therefore I'm going to have a huge position in this, this bank. It's important to have conviction um, in the stocks that you own, sort of regardless of what, what happens with the macro. So one example of a stock that we own right now is LVMH. So LVMH is a, is a global uh, luxury company. It has lots of different moving parts. If the U.S. is doing well, it will do well, but it also has Europe. It has recovery in China. It has multiple brands. It has multiple different price points within luxury. And so the conviction that you can have in a stock like that Versus if you just, you know, put 50% of your portfolio in a U.S. bank because you think interest rates are going to keep going up. Um, you know, that's a better way with diversification and conviction in the stock that you do own right now, I think, than, than making a bet on the, um, the trajectory of interest rates in the U.S. Yeah, 100% agree with you. And I think the fund speaks for itself because your performance is really quite impressive in this down market that we've had and the multiple bear rallies, you know, we can see on the one year figure, it's only down four and a half percent. And if I look at any index, it's anywhere from 15 to 20% down year to date. So really impressive there. I just want to ask one follow up question on that because we agree with you on diversification point. What would be your optimal amount of stocks in a portfolio that you have high conviction? And at the moment, how much dry powder are you running at the moment? Like what are you pivoting in terms of cash levels to go, mm, not yet ready for it to bottom? Can you kind of let us in on the secrets there? The secret is there's no secret. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry to disappoint. But so the, the main way that we look at it is this is a high conviction fund. So we're not going to buy 150 stocks and just put a little bit in each and you know hope that it, it turns out. It's very difficult to generate alpha on a consistent basis if that's your approach. So we're allowed to have between 25 and 40, but on average, we have between 28 and 32. So it's, you know, right now we have about 30. So it's very concentrated and there is conviction in each one of those stock picks. We try to... 
the risk in our portfolio is on the stock level, um, not on the macro or the, the sector level. And if that's the case, then you need to have, you know, a concentrated portfolio. We think 30 uh, for right now is, is about the right number. And then in terms of the cash level, so cash is not a lever that, that we, um, you know, use quite consistently. We can go up to 20% cash, but there was only one time it was, you know, during the, the depths of COVID when there was extreme uncertainty where that number was around 10 or 11%. But in general, we run cash around 5% or even slightly lower and that's right where that's where we are right now and part of that has to do with um, looking for which com- companies in the market are showing that's earnings leadership and if you look at that on a relative basis you can always find companies that that are where the earnings are outperforming uh, other companies so for example 18 months ago we had a lot of the you know formerly called fangman stocks in the portfolio google was one of the biggest positions microsoft was one of the biggest positions apple was a very big position we had amazon and we had netflix and now because all of those companies except for maybe apple have gone into a deep earnings downgrade cycle we don't hold any of them and we hold stocks like LVMH that I mentioned before, Pepsi, McDonald's, um, utilities like Nextera Energy. So these are global stocks that can continue to have, um, you know, strong earnings. And our view is that it's better to, you know, sort of be in those, those companies and be invested in the companies that have strong earnings rather than just, you know, wag the, sometimes cash is like the tail that wags the dog, right? And if you have 20% cash and you get that call wrong, it doesn't matter if that 80% that's invested in good stocks, if you've had the right call, it's the cash that's sort of wagging the, the dog of your portfolio. So that is not sort of how we invest. We're generally almost fully invested. And then when we see different opportunities, we rotate out of out of stocks that we own into those, those new and better opportunities. So Mary, we understand your investment philosophy as being in the middle of a growth and a traditional value investor. We know you've got a special name for that. So are you kind of trying to find the sweet spot where a company has stabilised earnings, but maybe the market's a bit too pessimistic on it, or it's been sold off, uh, or perhaps growth in the business is being missed by the market and EPS is underestimated. So that's question one. And then question two, what needs to happen for a stock to actually fall out of your portfolio and for you to lose conviction? Okay, great questions. In terms of the way that we invest, we are style agnostic. So Alfinity is not a growth investor and it's not a value investor. We are following earnings leadership. And sometimes you find that earnings leadership in growth stocks. So that would be, you know, a lot of the post GFC um, sort of market environment. And certainly from the bottom of COVID that was led by growth. But sometimes that earnings leadership is in value. And sometimes that earnings leadership is in more defensive kind of companies, which is where we are now. So that is why you mentioned performance before, why our performance has been so consistent. Because stocks that just do growth, they do fantastic in a growth environment. And stocks that just do value, it's vice versa. Um, but when you know their style of investing is out of favor, they can generate significant amounts of negative alpha. So if you have a style agnostic approach, um, that means that you can outperform in lots of different market scenarios. And I, I, as you guys may know, I have two kids who are absolutely passionate sailors. This is what I spend all of my free time doing is driving them around to sailing. But there is a bit of a sailing analogy if, if any of your listeners are, are also sailors. It's like growth investors say, I'm sailing this way. I I don't care which way the wind is blowing. I've decided that I'm going this way. And value investors say, I'm sailing this way. I haven't checked the conditions. I don't care what's going on with the wind. I've decided that I'm sailing this way. And, you know, in certain different, you know, environments or conditions, both of those can outperform. But the alfinity way is saying, we want to get to the finish line first. So if the wind is blowing a certain way, we'll go on starboard tack. If the wind is blowing another way, we will go on port tack. Our idea is get to the finish line first. 
And that's by following earnings leadership, not by following a, a certain style. I love that. That is amazing. Value and growth agnostic with such a great analogy. That was very good. Thank you. All of my time sitting on the, on the start boat and the coach boat is paying off in terms of analogies. But it does help people sort of visualize uh, the way that Alfinity invests. And then, um, so your, your second question in terms of, you know, what, what that means in terms of selling stocks we have something that we call the Alfinity Investment Clock. And um, it's a bit hard to describe, but if anyone wants to go to our website, you can. there's a picture of it on, on the website. We don't want to be invested in companies that are in an earnings downgrade cycle. So if you picture a clock, you can think of that as from like 12 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning. Those are stocks that are in an earnings downgrade cycle. We don't want to be in them, even if they're very well-known brand names or if they're stocks that are you know big parts of our benchmark. It doesn't matter. We don't want to be invested in them. We want to be invested in stocks that are in an earnings upgrade cycle. So you can think of that from like six o'clock in the morning until till 12 o'clock. What we found using a lot of back testing and a lot of statistical analysis is that to pick that six o'clock point right when a company goes out of an earnings downgrade cycle into an earnings upgrade cycle is very difficult. It's what we talked about before, Candice, in terms of that falling knife. Six o'clock is the falling knife period. Um, so generally, we wait and get confirmation that a company is in an earnings upgrade cycle and we invest then at what would be seven o'clock. So not trying to bottom ticket, making sure that we're comfortable. But then to your question, Felicity, in terms of when do we sell stocks, we are not value investors saying, you know, we buy stocks that are at five times PE and by the time they get to seven, we, we want to be out of them. We get out of stocks when they're out of that earnings upgrade, upgrade cycle or when that valuation is getting so stretched that, you know, everybody is on board with the earnings upgrade cycle. There's no surprises left. And that's extremely, uh, reflected in the valuation. So I'll give you two examples which show sort of how this, this clock works. One is Mercado Libre, which is a stock that I really like. Um, it's a Brazilian e-commerce and fintech stock. And it went through a deep earnings downgrade cycle um, about 18, 18 months ago. The stock halved, more than halved to the, to the very bottom. But Brazil as an economy has started to turn the corner. We saw two good quarters of earnings upgrades and earnings surprises. So we invested in the stock. They had another good quarter of earnings, so we increased our position. So that's a good example there. On the other end would probably be McDonald's. McDonald's has performed very, very well over the last few years, and it certainly outperformed. It's, you know, some of these defensives like McDonald's and Pepsi, they're all-time highs, which is amazing if you think of where the, the market is overall. But it's starting to get quite expensive on a PE level. So we're taking profits in that and reducing the position size um, given where it is sort of on the affinity clock. Speaking of earnings downgrade and potential concerns and taking profits, one position that I've had for many, many years is the first time ever I'm actually considering taking a profit in Apple. You mentioned you don't have, you know, many fangs um, for that reason, right? So, you know, what's your thoughts on Apple? You know, are you thinking it's going to be cautious going ahead? I know a lot of analysts are actually downgrading that stock for the first time. So what's the feelings for, for Apple going forward? First of all, congratulations, Candice, on owning Apple for a long period of time. I did <laughs> listen to one of your other podcasts where you're saying it was one of the first stocks that you bought. And if you were to pick a stock to own for the long term and have a multi-bagger, Apple was a was a, a, good, a good choice. <laughs> I know. Um, I, I fluked it. But now I'm like, what do I do? Do I take a profit? So I really want to know what you are doing right now regarding Apple. Well, well you're in a better position than most people because you're so in the money <laughs> on, on your trade. Um, but I think the way that we look at Apple, um, similar to I think some of the things that you've talked about in the past, is that some people think of Apple as an iPhone company. 
And if you think of it as a mobile phone company, then you might not hang on to it in this sort of environment because there is some stress in the consumer, particularly with respect to, um, you know, buying electronics because there was a bit of pull forward there during COVID lockdown time. And then there's a bit of stress there on the supply chain, certainly with everything that's going on um, in China. Even if there is the demand, it's unclear in this fourth quarter and first quarter whether Apple's going to be able to, to meet that demand because of the supply chain constraints. But that is a very, very short term view. Part of the reason we continue to hold Apple, even though we have taken some profits in it in the, in the previous six months, is because the long term earnings upgrade story for, for Apple is, is likely still intact in terms of it's an ecosystem company. It's not just an iPhone company. If, if any of you are in the, the Apple um, ecosystem, you know, once you have a, the iPad and once you have the watch and once you have everything, and then I, I don't know about you guys, but as a family, we're all in the, in the iPhone. Uh, we're all in the, the sort of Apple ecosystem. So then it's like a multiplier effect. So if you look at it from that perspective, the long-term earnings trajectory for Apple, um, the, the asset-like business model, their ability to generate cash, their ability to use that cash to do buybacks and to keep EPF uh, in an earnings upgrade cycle is just very, very powerful. I mean, there's a reason it's the biggest market cap stock in the world. Um, and so I think that long-term story is, is definitely intact. It's just that short-term story, whether you're going to get multiple quarters of, of downgrades is a little bit unclear. So we still, we don't own any of the fang men. Um, we've never owned Facebook. Microsoft is gone. Uh, Amazon is gone. Netflix is gone. Um, NVIDIA is gone. But Apple is, is the one that made, that it um, stays in our portfolio for right now. Well, that's lucky we Facebook or now Meta because that's just gone backwards, um, more so than all of the other things, right? Yeah, it's been um, a terrible stock. And this is a good example of where our ESG work has come in because some people did make the, the correct fundamental call on, on Facebook, um, you know, that it was going to go into an earnings downgrade cycle. But we actually never have owned Facebook because we screened it out on ESG concern. And most of that is on the S and most of that is, is on the, the governance and, you know, Zuckerberg shareholding and his sort of um, predominance over the, the company and the way the decisions are made. And that has certainly been alpha generative for us this year. But it also is, if you look at what's happening with the, the metaverse, um, I mean, it's unclear if there's going to be any return on all this investment in the metaverse at all. It, it's highly likely that Mark Zuckerberg is the only person in the world who actually wants to hang out there. And they're spending, you know, billions and billions of dollars of, of CapEx on, on a concept which is unproven. So, uh, Facebook or now called, called Meta is, is in an earnings downgrade cycle. And even if it manages to swing around, we, we won't buy it until the ESG improves. Yeah, he might be the only one in the metaverse, that's for sure. Let's leave the fangs and the kind of large cap tech there just for a moment. I want to pick your brains on because I know you've just come back from a bit of a global tour, you know, catching up with companies that you're invested in and maybe ones that you have on your watch list. But what's your sense, I guess, give us your recap on the US earnings seasons that's just wrapped, you know, any new names that you had on the watch list has gone up closer and closer to potentially a buy that you can let us know about? Yes. So you're right. We are back on the road as a team. There's there's five co-portfolio managers at Alfinity. Between the five of us, we've done 15, 16 overseas trips thus far this year. So that's a really big difference versus what we were doing in the last few years. And it is helpful both in terms of gaining conviction in the stocks that you already own and then also in terms of finding uh, new ideas. So one of the stocks that has gone into the portfolio recently is Starbucks. And this is kind of, as I mentioned before, you know, we've been trimming McDonald's because it's done so amazingly well and not selling out of the whole position, but trimming it back from what was a very, very large position. 
Starbucks um, has been has been an earnings downgrade cycle for about 18 months. You know, you may recall that Howard Schultz, the, the founder and, and former CEO, came back in as the CEO, and he's developed a whole sort of turnaround um, strategy and a new execution strategy. They've hired a new CEO. We've watched the stock for two quarters um, to be comfortable that it's in an earnings upgrade cycle, and we started adding, uh, like initiating a new position. Obviously, China is a big driver of Starbucks earnings. And, you know, we talked before about falling knives and, and bottom picking it. It's very hard to pick the precise date when China is going to, you know, reopen and, and come out of COVID. But it's likely going to be sometime in 2023. And when that does happen, that's a very big earnings tailwind for Starbucks. So we have a relatively small position right now, and I expect that to grow over time. You know, we've also traveled a lot uh, in Asia and in Europe. And I think two things that have come out of that is that certainly the war with Russia and Ukraine has highlighted the fact that Europe needs to move very quickly towards renewables. And um, you know, so we have looked at a number of renewables companies around the world. Nextera Energy is, is our top pick there. It's the largest renewable company in the U.S. You may know that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act was recently passed in the U.S., which is going to be a huge tailwind to companies like Nextera and a lot of their customers in the U.S., and we have done a lot of work on lithium and EVs and that whole EV supply chain. So another company which we recently added to our global sustainable fund is Samsung SDI, which is one of the largest EV battery companies in the world. So those are some of the, the different ideas that we're working on right now. Amazing. Well, we love investable ideas here at Talk Money to Me. So we're very excited to delve into those a little bit deeper. Um, and it's also very interesting because you used to run the Elliston Asian Investments Fund. So you obviously have quite a detailed experience um, in investing in Asia, which is very exciting as it's close to home for us. Now, in a moment, we're going to chat more about that. And we're also going to hear a few things that we're very passionate about, unicorns, ESG investing, as well as Mary's top future-facing commodity ideas. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back. All right, Mary, let's address the unicorn on the podcast it is not every day that you get to speak to such a well-established female portfolio manager. I think most of the managers on our podcast have been males. Um, we know it's you know a, not a very crowded space in finance and funds management. So we'd actually really love to hear from your perspective. Why do you think that is? Amazing question. Uh, the million dollar question, probably uh, worth more than that. I, I wish that there was a silver bullet and that there was one reason that I could say this is the reason why there's there's not very many female for portfolio managers and then we could just address that that reason. 
But the, the truth of it is, I think there's, there's many factors that, that contribute to it. Um, one is, I think that being a fund manager is all about having a track record. And it's very, very linear in terms of you need a one-year track record, you need a three-year track record to raise certain funds, you need a five-year track record to re- raise even more funds. Some investors are looking for a 10-year track record. And sometimes women's lives are not that linear. Um, my life certainly has not been linear at all. I was... Uh, I was a vice president and I, I had my own sleeve of capital, but not a portfolio manager. And then I left to do my PhD and then I moved back in um, Singapore and ran some money. And then I uh, took two years of maternity leave and then I came back as an analyst and then I became a PM. And it's, you know, it, it's not linear. So I think that that's, that's one different, but there are certainly things from a structural perspective that can be implemented to make sure that, that women portfolio managers and women analysts um, can continue to generate that, that track record for themselves. The second thing I think is that there needs to be, um, so for example, I have a 12 year old daughter and, uh, last year during COVID, um, my son's school said you should teach your children a skill. And so I said to my kids, I only have two skills, equity investing and yoga. You guys, you guys pick which one you want. And, uh, my son's like, I don't like downward dogs. I'm, I'm doing equity investing. So we started <laughs> a portfolio for him and he was invested. And my daughter, she was very young, but she's like, mom, this is so boring. Oh my goodness, this is so boring. And, you know, I went on a small rant about how boring was funding her lifestyle. But, um, I think that there is among some people that, that perception that, that finance is boring. And so I know there's some really amazing organizations in, in Australia that are working with, with girls in schools and in universities and, and helping them get into finance. But I think, you know, and, and your podcast is a fantastic example of this is not boring. This is really, really exciting. And, and I don't, I don't get the boring thing because I, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. I mean, I get paid to think about interesting things and look at interesting companies and travel around the world and talk with CEOs. Like it's the opposite of boring. So I think there's a, there's a marketing thing that, that finance could do to just make sure that that perception, um, is a, is a little bit different. So those are two things that I, I would highlight, but they're only two in, in, a, in a number of factors. I'd be interested to know what, what you guys think and if there's the reason why there's fewer female PM. A hundred percent. I think what, I mean, look, finance is very fun. We love it. But I think a lot of people, a lot of women don't find it that interesting. However, from a lot of research that we have done, we've actually found that female advisors, female PMs and female investors actually tend to outperform their male counterparts. I think it's because they're actually less emotional when it comes to investing. They don't actually panic or they don't get that greed factor that that um, some men potentially do. Not trying to stereotype on talk money to me. It's just something that I've read. So I think that was quite interesting. Yeah, actually, you you reminded me of a a very good point. There are some women in the US, uh, I think they're at Columbia Business School, who have written a book about confidence. And their view is that a lot of it has to do with confidence. And that just having the confidence to make your first investment and then grow that investment, um, that sometimes taking the, that first step or those first few steps is something that women lack. But it means that over time, there's a very big investment gap, both from a financial perspective and from a knowledge perspective. So when I meet younger women, um, you know, I, I always encourage them. Um, you know, Felicity, you were talking about in one of your, your podcasts how you, you bought some commodity stocks like with a thousand dollars. Yeah. The first company I bought was China Mobile, which is like, I'm a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was really young and it had an ADR so I could buy it in my US account and I put like very small amounts of money into it. But I think just having the confidence to, to start 
is really important. And then once uh, women or anyone really um, starts, I think that that you know, it can snowball yeah. from there. I think it's also maybe they could be a bit more risk adverse potentially. I mean, I'm definitely not that. Um, I was quite a high risk investor. Yeah, you don't fall into that category. <laughs> but I think that could potentially be it, which kind of falls into confidence also, right? Being risk adverse and, and confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting that the next generation of investors that we're seeing more and more focus a lot on sustainable um, investment goals, ESG, you know, the E, if you break it out of ESG, really stands up. More so for women, Mary. So love to pick your brains on that because we know that you're also the PM on the sustainability fund. You know, what are you seeing in terms of the next generation trend? And like, I know your daughter said it's boring, the investment market, but does, do you have chats about the importance of ESG investing with her? Absolutely. Actually, it comes the other way in terms of, of ESG. So we were in the, the shopping, uh, like IGA one day and we were buying shampoo. I took some shampoo off the shelf and she says, uh, mom, is there palm oil in that? And do you know if that palm oil, you know, was negative for orangutans in Indonesia? And I was like, how do you know this? Um, so I think that the, that the next generation, you know, when I started investing and certainly when I started looking at ESG, it was very much a risk mitigation thing. And investing in Asian emerging markets, you need to make sure that you have something, particularly on the governance side, but increasingly on the environmental and social side, that just reduces the risk that you're in a bad company that's going to blow up or get delisted or something. So ESG maybe 15 years ago, even 10 years ago was a little bit niche. But now ESG is, you know, looking at those risks around that is very, very mainstream. If you don't have some sort of ESG integration process in your fundamental analysis, it will be very hard to get institutional investors interested in your product and increasingly retail investors as well. So I think a little about that is becoming mainstream, as it should be. It's a very important part of, of you know, minimizing your, your downside risk. But your point about the, the next generation is, is, is absolutely accurate in terms of, you know, millennials and even, you know, the generations that are, that are um, younger than them, they really want to align their portfolio with their core values. And they don't see, whereas like my parents' generation, your values were over here and your investment portfolio were over here. And if they didn't line up, like, no, there was not the expectation that they would. But I think certainly with millennial investors and younger, there is absolutely the starting point is that your portfolio will align with your personal values. And um, I, I think that that's a positive. So one of the reasons why we have a sustainability fund and we have a domestic sustainable fund, um, which has done very well, it's been going for over, over 10 years, is that it allows people to align their portfolios with their value system. Um, one thing that's critical there, though, is making sure that there's no greenwashing. So greenwashing has is a term that's... Um, been around for a while, but it's come to the forefront because some of the regulatory changes, and certainly in Australia, ASIC is is taking a, a you know very hard look at a lot of funds that claim to be ESG or claim to be sustainable or claim to be impact, um, and they're not actually. So at Alfinity, we go to great lengths to make sure that it outlines this is our uh, this is our charter. So we have a very specific charter. These are the things that we invest in. These are the things that we don't. So fossil fuels is on that list. Um, gambling, pornography, alcohol, tobacco, sort of the, the usual suspects are on that list. And then we are very, very transparent about how we define sustainability so that people can align 
their portfolios uh, with their value systems and be very confident that what's in the portfolio is what we've actually said is going to be in the portfolio. That's always great to hear. So that's really how you use the SDGs to help frame your investment decision making. Would that be right? Yes. So the first point is that we distinguish between ESG and sustainability Mm -hmm. because ESG, we're, we're looking at it from a, a ESG risk and an operational risk perspective. Obviously, there is some overlap, particularly with the, the E and the F part, but ESG is, is a separate analysis that we do in terms of operational risk. And then sustainability, we're looking at what a company does, what business are they involved in, what product or service are they selling. And for that, we look at a company's revenue and align them with the 17 UN uh, develop, sustainable development goals, and that's how we define sustainability. So it's important to be very clear about those two. Otherwise, stocks can get into the portfolio, which are um, very strange. You can have stocks like British American Tobacco, for example, which has good ESG, um, but it's obviously not sustainable. It's, you know, giving people lung cancer, and um, you know, vice versa. You can have stocks that um, are sustainable and their their business activities align with the SDGs, but they may have very bad governance. Um, so. Yeah, we distinguish between those two, and that's how we develop uh, a portfolio of sustainable stocks. They have to have good ESG and align with the SDGs. That's really interesting. So for everyone listening, if you want to create your own portfolio, then you really need to put those two overlays, essentially, to get the right positions in your portfolio. I've just had a thought. You know, Mary, what would be very, very interesting? If you were able to get both your son and your daughter to put together a mock portfolio and actually see how both of theirs perform over the next one, two, three, four, Five years. It'd be very interesting to see who actually does better in that scenario, seeing as everything, you know, your daughter's bringing up about orangutans. Um, she's obviously got a very good investment ethos already. Yeah, I think so. I've told her, um, her brother's three years older. So I told her, okay, you may have thought it's boring when you're 12, but by the time you're 15, you're going to have your own investment portfolio, even if you think it's boring, because as you both well know, that investment gap is, is huge. Um, if you, you know, the sooner you start and, you know, you can see it in Australia in terms of the super gap and, and a lot of these gaps, you, you, you just need to start. So I'll, I'll get back to you in three years when she does have her own portfolio and see how it goes. But with, with both my kids and, and also with, with any investor who's, who's, um, you know, younger, maybe starting their investing journey, I, I, at the risk of sounding like Warren Buffett, you need to buy what you know. So, so my son's portfolio, you know, he has Nike, which has not been a, a good stock, but, you know, and he, he just, he buys stuff that he knows. And it sounds very simplistic, but it's much better than, than boring into, into stuff that you don't understand or where you don't have an interest. That could be where it becomes boring also. So, you know, a good starting point is buying what you know and what you like. Um, there, there are worse places to start um, than that. That's great. And what you're really interested in, right? Because that will potentially help you from selling off in a downturn and panicking. So that really helps um, when you know exactly what they're doing. So we're just going to pivot a little bit with the decarbonization theme. Um, can you name a couple of businesses that you like? Because we obviously are very interested in future-facing commodities, think that we're going into a commodity super cycle. Um, you know, what are you looking at at the moment in this space? So I would say two things. One is uh, renewables. So that's why we own Nextera in the US in terms of wind and solar. It, it, you know, globally, um, the, the biggest renewable utility in the world. And so that's a stock that we really like uh, on, on that front. And then in terms of future facing commodities, um, we do like EVs and the EV supply chain. So we own Mercedes uh, as a sort of end user. We think Mercedes has 
of the, all the OEMs, it has one of the best transition strategies to go from ICE vehicles to EVs. And also just given everything that's going on in the, the world and with the global consumer, um, that exposure to luxury that we talked about in the, the context of LVMH, you know, Mercedes is in that same basket in terms of not having price sensitive consumers. So Mercedes is a stock we like in terms of EV transition. And then in the middle of that supply chain, we do like Samsung SDI. As you know, a lot of the battery supply chain, like almost exclusively actually, is is in Asia. And so you have a couple in Korea, Samsung FDI, um, LG Energy, and uh, FK Innovation. And then you have the, the big one, CATL, which is, is based in China. And there's quite an interesting geopolitical thing going on right now where a lot of those companies are being um, asked or uh, you know suggested to move some of that supply chain to the U.S. and Europe. So you don't have a redux of what's happened with semiconductors where you have a huge amount of capacity for one product uh, in one region of the world. And if you get a geopolitical issue in that region or if you get another COVID or something like that, it can really mess up global supply chains. So Samsung SDI is our top pick there, primarily on valuation grounds and because we like some of the customers that it has. And then you guys know a lot about, about lithium. We do own Albemarle, which is our, our pick in the lithium space, uh, primarily because it's the highest quality uh, global lithium company. There are some very good ones in Australia, but we are a global fund, so we don't invest domestically. And Albemarle is our pick uh, on the lithium side. Interesting. So many good names there. Loving loving listening to all of that and the thematic behind it. I know you've mentioned so many great investable ideas, but are there three other or as many as you can give top global companies that you haven't mentioned just to kind of summarize why you're liking it as we head into 2023? Yeah, so I'd say one that we like is Waste Connections. So when we've been talking about ESG and sustainability, it's been more on the decarbonization side, but obviously there's there's different parts to sustainability that aren't just about climate change. So waste connections and, you know, moving towards circular economies and, um, you know, recycling. This is a, a very important sort of sub-thematic within sustainability. So waste connections is the, the largest, um, you know, recycler and, and waste company is the third largest in North America. And it's a stock, as we were discussing right at the beginning, that you're not betting on a certain outcome for the economy. If, if interest rates go up or if interest rates go down, um, if oil price goes up, oil price goes down, if there's different macro outcomes, people are still going to need their trash picked up. And so that's one of the reasons that we like Waste Connections. It's a growth company, but it's relatively defensive growth. It's not going to fall off a cliff under, under different macroeconomic conditions. So that's a stock that we started looking at for a sustainable fund, and it's ended up being in a top 10 position. At one point, it was a top three position in our global core fund. Um, one of the stocks that I mentioned briefly before, but that I really like is Mercado Libre. And that's because it, it's not dissimilar to Apple in terms of the ecosystem conversation that we had. So Mercado Libre, they have both fintech. So fintech consists of payments and credit and the by far the largest e-commerce platform in all of Latin America. And they have Mercado Envios, which is the, the delivery. And um, when you have that whole ecosystem sort of locked up, it's very difficult for another player to make any inroads. So Amazon is nowhere in Brazil. Shopee, one of their other competitors, has just decided to leave certain Latin American countries. So they are in a prime position and they have an ecosystem business model and they're in that earnings upgrade cycle. So that's the stock um, that I really like. We've talked about LVMH, so I won't mention that before, but I think luxury overall is still in a, a very positive um, space. 
In addition to LVMH, one stock where I'm just doing work on is Caring. So Caring is the, the parent company of Gucci. That's been a brand which is under a little bit of pressure, both from a design perspective, also because it has a lot of exposure to China. And they've just fired their old designer and they're looking for a new one. And as we've discussed before, China may turn around in 2023. Yeah. So I think that's a um, that could be interesting from there. And then um, another stock that we continue to like in, in tech. So uh, from a portfolio construction perspective, if you don't own very many of the fang mans, um, you know, that leaves a lot of percentages that need to be um, put elsewhere. So one stock that we do really like in technology is Fortinet. So Fortinet is a company that's focused on, on cybersecurity. And certainly in the wake of everything that's gone on in the world with certain cyber attacks, and certainly, um, you know, the war in Europe, cybersecurity has really, really gone up the priority list of a lot of businesses. And Fortinet is going to be uh, a beneficiary of that. So those are a few examples across different sectors. And that comes back to what I was talking about in terms of diversification. We haven't just picked one thematic and, you know, chucked 10 or 12 stocks that center that thematic into the portfolio. We're diversified across lots of different sectors. That's fantastic. And I hope everyone's listened to the end of this podcast because otherwise they're going to miss out on these fantastic ideas. Because um, we also really think that cybersecurity is an important place to invest in and I guess somewhat recession-proof, you know, potentially even more so, where there's constantly attacks. Uh, what was our last one, which was Medibank? So, you know, constantly a problem. Now, Mary, we have one very, very, very important question that we really like to ask all of our guests, coffee, tea or tequila? Oh, definitely coffee. <laughs> coffee with a Gucci handbag, it seems. As, as I mentioned, we just added Starbucks to the portfolio. And it's risky talking about Starbucks in Australia because people have this visceral anti-I-don't-like-Starbucks coffee reaction. Yeah. So um, I do like Australian coffee. After living here for 13 years, I've become a bit of a coffee snob. So I'm, I'm definitely in the coffee, not tea, not tequila. All right. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. That's been fantastic. Like very, very good insights. We're very lucky to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Mary. Alrighty. Wow. That's a wrap. What a fantastic chat with Mary. Felicity, for me personally, all right, she's sold me. I'm just going to keep holding onto my Apple uh, for the next couple of earnings cycle. Let's see what happens there. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shrine Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. You should always go out and seek your own professional advice and do your own research before you make any of your investment decisions. Our chat today is based on the facts known at the time being the 29th of November, 2022. That's it. And look, both of those Alfinity funds sounded really, really interesting and I really, really enjoyed her investment philosophy. So definitely ones that we need to look at potentially for our clients. Now, again, make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed it, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Remember, if you've got any questions or you want to ask us anything, you can email us at tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. 
Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.